The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bibles, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to look at the final verses, verses 9 through 20. And this is the Great Commission. Jesus ends with uh, the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, comes to the final commission of Jesus to all of the disciples to make disciples. So we're going to take that charge from the Lord. At the end of the service, I'm going to have us all stand. I want to pray with you and pray for you that you will receive a divine commission from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and go and make disciples. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word. We open our hearts and our spirit to you. We are ready to receive your word. May you speak to us. May we have ears to hear what the spirit is saying. May we have eyes to see what you want to show and to reveal to us. And Lord, we're looking for not just the the natural realm and what's happening here. We see that. But we're praying for a heavenly spiritual insight, divine insight, that we will look with our spiritual eyes at what is happening at this very moment and this very hour, that we will see your hand, we will see your word come to pass, we will feel the empowering of your Holy Spirit as we go into this hour of human history and make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We commit all of this into your hands. In Jesus' mighty, wonderful name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, let's begin with our first life lesson. And I love this. It is when we are obeying God's word that he comes to us. Look at me at Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10. In fact, actually, I'm going to go back just a moment here um, Go back to verse 5, so we'll read up to the context. It says, But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. That's basically where he had been, but now it's empty. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. In verse nine, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I love this in verse 9. As they went to tell the disciples, that is the word that the Lord had given to them from the angel. The angel said, hey, come into the tomb. See where he used to lay. He's no longer here. He's alive. He's risen. He's gone. Now, go tell his disciples, go from here in Jerusalem back up to Galilee, where it all started, and that his disciples will meet him there. So the women ran, 
And while they're running to tell the disciples, in other words, while they're obeying the word of the Lord through the angel, they see Jesus. And he says, rejoice. And he brings them this tremendous greeting. I want you to to grasp this. When we are walking in obedience to the Lord, that's when we will have divine revelations of Jesus Christ. So obey the Lord, obey him, follow him. Don't just read and don't just study the word, but seek to live the word and to obey the word and to walk in the word and his spirit will come upon you. Now there's something, there's a scripture that is in Isaiah. I didn't put this in your notes, but I want you to write it down real quick. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Because we need right now uh, to not just see the things that are in the natural. If, if your mind is locked in on what's happening here in the natural, you're going to get very discouraged, very depressed. How many would agree that most of the headlines are very depressing? Is anybody feeling that heaviness and that weight? Um, and so the Lord has been impressing on me, so I want to share it with all of you. That we cannot, in fact, especially at this time in, the, in, the, uh, in this summer June going into July, I don't know if you know that historically, this is related to the same time that the spies went into the land. And as the spies went into the promised land, God really wanted them not to look in the natural, but he wanted them to look in the spiritual. Because if they only looked at the natural, and that's what happened to 10 of the 12 spies, they didn't have spiritual eyes. They didn't have faith. They went into the land. They spent 40 days there. After 40 days, they came back. And you know what? They, the Bible says they gave an evil report. An evil report. This is the promised land. That God had told them, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is going to be the blessing of the Lord. You are my children. You are my chosen. I'm going to bless you and use you to create and provoke jealousy among the nations of the world that they will want to be in relationship with me. But when they went in, they gave an evil report. Why? Because they only saw with their physical eyes. And what did they see in the physical? Giants. And in the physical, when they saw all of the giants that occupied their minds, they came back and they, they were afraid. And they, those 10, you know, t- dominated. There's only two that saw in the spirit, Joshua and Caleb. So kind of by numerically, the, the majority said we shouldn't go into the land. And they, they brought fear to two and a half million people. Joshua and Caleb also went in. And one of the places they went in during the 40 days was Hebron. Hebron is what God wanted them to see in the spirit because it's in Hebron that the patriarchs were buried, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They literally were able to go into the promised land and Joshua and Caleb said, oh, those those earthly giants, they're little pipsqueaks. They're nothing. We've seen the real giants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they came back with a good report. So I want to encourage you that if you only look at the natural and listen to the news that's going on in this world from a natural perspective, you're going to be filled with fear. We need to have the eyes of Joshua and Caleb and of his spirit. So here's the scripture I want you to write down. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. We need to start waiting on the Lord. In fact, that's why I'm excited we're going to have this prayer vigil that's going where you're praying and then you're watching others fill in the other 
hours of prayer, and we're going to just bombard heaven with prayer for a great, mighty outpouring of his spirit. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says, they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up as with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. How many of you would love to experience all of that? Hallelujah. They that wait on the Lord. Now, let me tell you about that word wait. In Hebrew, the word wait, kava, literally means to entwine. It means to get entwined. It's like, you know, with vines and how they will entwine. Isn't that interesting? They that wait on the Lord. It's talking about prayer. But the the root meaning of the word is they that entwine themselves with the Lord. That's what happens in prayer as you just, you don't have to have a list of all the things you you want to pray about. That's okay. That's good. Uh, Or the problems you're working out. But just, I want to encourage us, enter into the presence of the Lord, seek the face of the Lord, and wait on the Lord. In other words, just look at him and begin worshiping him and adoring him and being filled with the spirit and the joy of the Lord. And as you do, your spirit and his spirit begin to entwine. And when your spirit is entwined in the presence of God, that's when the power of God, the glory of God, the refreshing of God, the strength of God, like eagle's wings, and you'll find energy. You'll be revived. You'll be renewed. You'll be able to run and not be weary and walk and not faint. So let us go and spend time in prayer, seeking the face of God, waiting on the Lord, getting entwined with him. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. All right. So here, back to the women. While they were running, while they were obeying the word of the Lord, they were in, that's another way to entwine yourself with the Lord is to obey it. Don't just read it, study it, but do it, practice it, and put it into your life. And while they were doing that, Jesus appeared to them. Now, when Jesus comes to them, what do these women do? They literally, they, they go down to the ground, they humble themselves at his feet, and they begin worshiping him. Oh, how I love this. And, and I want you to think about what this means. Now, we take it maybe for granted. But they're worshiping at the feet of Jesus Christ, and Jesus does not stop them. Do you know what that says about Jesus? Jesus is equal with God. As he said, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you have seen my Father. Jesus allowed himself to be worshiped as God. He didn't say, oh no, stop, don't do that. I'm just, you know, a, a servant or a prophet and only you can only worship my Father. No, he allowed them to worship himself. The Father glories in the Son. The Son glories in the Father, and they are one. And I think this is so beautiful and so precious. Then look with me in verse 10. Jesus says to them, while they're worshiping him, he said, do not be afraid and go tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Tell my brothers. (laughs) Again, let that, you know, so... 
Jesus is saying, go tell my brothers. And who is he saying it to? His sisters. We are brought into the family. I mean, don't, don't take this lightly. And the other thing that think about is, you know, what, what else? I'm reading this and I'm thinking of everything that just had happened at the cross and going even back to the Garden of Eden, or not Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples falling asleep. I mean, what if Jesus had said, hey, you guys, remember when I was in the garden and sweating great drops of blood, you fell asleep. Where were you? Or Peter, what are you doing? You denied me. Hey, what about when I was on the cross? Some of you weren't even there. Jesus could have said all of those things, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, go tell my brothers. Sisters, go tell my brothers that I will meet them in Galilee. Well, you know what that says to us? What that says to us is all their failures, all of their mistakes, all of their, you know, failing before the Lord is washed, cleansed, and forgiven. And the Lord says, now, I'm going to give you a brand new identity. I am your elder brother. The Bible calls him our elder brother. Now, he is, you know, obviously he's the Savior. He is the Lord, and we worship him, but he has brought us into the family of God. Isn't that precious? Isn't that sweet that we are his family, and we are related to him and he is our elder brother. Well, let's move on to verses 11 through 15, and I'm gonna call this the great cover-up. So as Jesus is revealing himself to the disciples, the men and the women, what about what was happening with, you know, at the tomb, the soldiers and, and everything that was going on there? So we read in verse 11, it says, now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure." So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Wow, the cover-up. We know what really happened, but here is the cover-up, and the cover-up shows the darkness of these religious leaders. Think about these soldiers who come to the Jewish religious leaders, and they've got to explain why there's no body. The religious leaders specifically had asked Pilate, we need Roman military soldiers to guard the tomb. And their greatest concern was, we've got to make sure nothing happens on the third day. Because this guy said, Jesus, that on the third day, he's going to rise from the dead. So we need soldiers to secure it and make sure that doesn't happen. So now, what did these Roman soldiers come and tell them? They came and reported, hey, look, I, I, you know, we, we don't know how to explain this. I don't know how the Roman soldiers explained it. But this supernatural being came, his face was like lightning. We were terrified, overwhelmed. We couldn't even move. The stone rolled away and he's gone. Now what do we do? I'm thinking that if you're, you know, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an elder, a Jewish religious leader, you might want to go, hey, maybe we were wrong. 
This, these are Romans. They're not even Jews. They don't even know our prophecies. And they're telling us a story of a supernatural. There were angels that came. The stone rolled away and he's alive. Wow, maybe we should repent and believe in him. But instead, they hear the soldier's story and they double down to cover up a miracle. What are we going to do? They pay them a large sum of money. They want to make sure this thing literally gets buried. Now, I want you to think about this. Here's the story they come up with. <laughs> they're, they're covering a known miracle. They've just heard the testimony of what happened. And they said, look, here's what we, you want, we want you to say. Say that you fell asleep. Now, think about what this means. To believe this lie, you would have to believe several things. Number one, you have to believe that all the Roman soldiers were sleeping. Number two, you have to believe that they violated Roman law by sleeping on duty, which is punishable by death. Thirdly, they slept so deeply that none of them were awakened when the seal was broken and this huge two-ton stone rolled away. They didn't hear any of that. And fourthly, they were all sleeping, but then when they woke up, they knew who had come and stolen the body. Does that make any sense? The whole thing is like the biggest fabrication and lie. But I do think it's interesting who the soldiers first went to. They didn't go to Pilate. They didn't go to their Roman military commanders. Who were the first ones that they went to? They went to the Jewish religious leaders to tell them what happened. Why? Because they knew that they wanted to cover this up as much as the Roman soldiers needed to cover this up so that they're not put to death. So the whole thing was convoluted. It was a huge cover-up of the miracle that they wanted to cover. And so that's what they came up with. The body was somehow stolen. Uh, what a fragile lie covering the greatest miracle of human history. Well, let's go on to verses 16 and 17. It says, when the disciples, now they're going to see Jesus, they also worshiped him. In verse 16, it says, and then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubt doubted. So now the women saw him. When they saw him, they fell at his feet and worshiped him. Now up in Galilee, Jesus appears to the guys. He appears to the disciples. And when they see him, they worship him to the mountain that had been appointed. Now, we don't know which mountain that was. It doesn't tell us. It could have been the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus delivered the greatest sermon uh, that is ever given. In fact, it's the only complete sermon we have of Jesus in the entire Gospels. Um, or it might have been Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is just to the north of Galilee, uh, and it's near the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus had taken the disciples, kind of for their graduation ceremony, Caesarea Philippi, and he said, all right, who do the people say that I am? They, they said, well, some think you're the prophet, some Elijah, some Jeremiah. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter, looking at Jesus, spoke and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, I believe, smiled, looked at Peter and said, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. If you know that, that you know who I am, 
My father has given you divine revelation. I always think about Peter. I wonder if he looked at the other guys and went, well, hey, guys, you know. (laughs) But Jesus then, it says, took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to a high mountain apart. Well, Caesarea Philippi is at the base of the largest mountain in Israel. It's called Mount Hermon. And there with Peter, James, and John, Jesus was transfigured and his face and his hair and his clothing became white like lightning. He was transfigured. It was the Mount of Transfiguration. Who knows? Maybe that is the mountain that Jesus now brought the disciples to. But it was some mountain. And when they saw him, that it was not just now knowing Jesus according to the flesh, But now all of the disciples seeing and knowing the power and the glory of the resurrection, his eternal nature, they also, just as the women, went down to his feet and they worshipped him. Interesting, though, there's a little caveat. It says that they worshipped him, but some still doubted. What What does that mean? How could you possibly doubt? I don't think that it means that they doubted that he was alive. There he was, and they could see him. But I wonder if there was just, you know, it seems like this is too good to be true. In a fallen, broken world, that's a saying. If it's too good to be true, it's probably not true. But that's in a fallen, broken world. In heaven, if it's awesome and it's good, it is true, because that's what heaven is. Amen? That's the way God works, and that's the way God is. There may have been also a feeling of some of them wow, he's alive and he is risen, and, and the, a sense of their own failure. We often, even when Christ reveals himself to us and, and when we're saved and when we love him and worship him and are bowing down to him, we're still so conscious of our own sins, failures, and weaknesses. So I, I want to remind all of you that are here today, all of you that are watching and listening online and those who are listening to the radio, that the Lord is wanting you to know, that's why he came and he, he says to his brethren. He doesn't bring up their failures. He doesn't bring up their past. He doesn't bring up their mistakes. They have a new identity. Just like the children of Israel, two and a half million of them had an identity that had been literally generationally bound into them as slaves while they were in Egypt. God supernaturally reveals himself to them, raises up a man named Moses with signs and with wonders and powerful displays of the delivering power of God, and then the Passover, and then, you know, he leads them out into the wilderness, and he literally is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But it took time for their minds and their hearts and their souls to let go of their past mentality and their past identity and to embrace a new identity. We are saved. We are safe. We are free. We are special to our Father. He is with us. He goes before us. He provides for us. And then for them to begin growing into their new identity. What God wanted to do for the whole nation, he is now doing again through the church. And that's why discipleship is about growing in your identity in Christ. Letting go of your past. 
letting go of your fears, letting go of your inadequacies. Really, when you live that way, and there are many Christians who, who they know that they're saved and they know that they have a relationship with Christ, but they, they're constantly hindered. It's like, you know, in a car where there's a limiter, that there's this limiter upon their lives because they're still living with a past identity. I just want to, in the name of Jesus, encourage you, inspire you, draw you, confirm to you from the Holy Spirit that God wants you to let your past be buried, let it go, let it be washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that growing as a child of God, he doesn't want you to remain a young infant toddler. He wants us to grow to the full measure of the stature of Christ. And part of growing in that way is to accept and to receive your full identity in Christ Jesus. Can I hear an amen on that? Let it go. That is the challenge of growing in faith, is to believe that I am who I am in Christ Jesus. No longer, if you're not to look at the world any longer according to the flesh, may I say that you're no longer to look and judge yourself according to worldly values and the flesh either. We have to begin training our minds in a spiritual mindset, coming into agreement with everything that God has said about what he has done with our past, with our present, with our future. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. This is for someone especially right here, right now that's listening to this that you have been beat up by the enemy and he's had you beaten down and discouraged and we resist the devil in Jesus' mighty name, amen? You are free. So let's go on to verse 18. I, I want this verse all by itself. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And as I have here in your notes, all authority means all power in heaven and on earth. In this verse, the word authority means power, the right to use power. And Jesus says, I have all authority. I have all power. And, and this is why he's going to go in to give a command that we're to go and make disciples, which is an authoritative command, not just a suggestion. There is authority in the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so I, I love this. Again, this is speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is claiming what can only be true of God. All power, all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus says is mine that speaks of the deity of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget this, that great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifested in the flesh through Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. Why we can be saved is because Jesus was God who became a man. It's a mystery, but he is our Lord and he is our savior. That's why there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen? Amen? Therefore, because he has all power and all authority, 
he now is going to be speaking to us to give us our marching orders. So I want you to look in verses 19 and 20. And here's where we're going to close and we're going to bring, wrap this all up together. It says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, Christianity is a missionary faith. It is not just for us to receive and, oh, wow, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, uh, I'm made whole, I'm going to heaven, wonderful, awesome. No, that's just the beginning. Here's the command to every believer. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples. Why? Because God's heart is so in love with the world. God loves all 7 billion people on this planet. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the hour that the church needs to hear the message from the heart of our Lord and Savior. Go into the world. This is a prime hour where people are looking for answers. There is a vacuum of leadership in the world. Have you noticed? There is a global pandemic going on. There are global problems. It looks like globally the wheels are coming off the bus. Do you know what's happening right now on the internet? People looking and searching for the answers spiritually, the truth, seeking Jesus, Spirit of God, Bible. What, what does the Bible say about the times in which we live? It is off the charts that people are diving in. And many of those are those who are near to you. They're your family, they're your friends, they're your coworkers, they're your neighbors. And therefore, the Lord is sending you. He is sending every single one of us to go into the world, starting with your own family, starting with the next generation that is beneath you, and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might hear of the love of God. They are desperate for good news, and that's our privilege to be able to share it with them. And we are commanded to make disciples. Now, there's an old model that was kind of like, well, look, that's what the church is for. And that's the role of the pastor. The pastor, you know, everybody comes to the church and then the pastor, he is the one that preaches the gospel and people get saved. And then he makes everybody a disciple. And then we come and we pray for him and are cheerleaders for him. <laughs> but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the responsibility of making disciples belongs to all of us. It's all our responsibility. This is where you come to get encouraged and taught and and built up in the faith, but you are the ones that God is commissioning. You as his sons and daughters are the ones to go. You are then to make disciples. You're like, me make disciples? What? How do I do that? Everything that God has taught you, everything that you have learned, everything that you have experienced, this is what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who looks to you for encouragement, leadership, understanding, prayer, and it's not just giving them information, but it's then, like Jesus did, he would teach them and he would explain and he would answer their questions. And then finally he would say, now, you go do what I just told you, or you go do what you have seen me do. 
So wherever you are, so each one of us must continue to grow spiritually, but there are always going to be those littler and younger brothers and sisters, maybe starting within your own family or your children or nieces and nephews or whatever there is, and we're to pour whatever we have to pour it into them, to pray for them, to shepherd them, to love them, uh, to encourage them, to exhort them, to speak a word of comfort to them, and then to challenge them. Now, we, go do what I have shown you. Share what I have shared with you. Can I hear an amen on that? And if the church would begin doing exactly what Jesus said, we could see a new, fresh, great awakening and revival. Look with me at uh, Scripture, Luke 24, verses 44 and 45. Let's read this out loud. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. That's what we're all to be doing, to open their minds of understanding to the scriptures so that they not only learn by listening, but we learn most by doing. In fact, if you have a pen or pencil, I want you to write that down. If you're not taking notes, I want you to write it in your brain. <laughs> Just write it. We learn the most by doing. The Bible says that we're to, that's why obedience is so enriching and so powerful. The more you obey, the stronger you become. The more mature you become. The more your father is able to trust you with his gifts and empowerment and the presence of his Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what we're going to see because next weekend, we're going to just continue from the end of Matthew. We're going to go right into the book of Acts and the early church. Jesus is risen. He's ascended. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's praying and interceding for us. And he sent the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus, in spiritual form to literally be inside of us, to speak to us, to encourage us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, to empower us, so that the very things Jesus did while he was here in the flesh on earth now continue to be done in the book of Acts. In fact, it's really the acts of the Holy Spirit through now the apostles and the early church, and a revival began to break out. It went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then all throughout the Mediterranean and the Roman world and reached a whole generation. Within one generation, the gospel came to them. Lo, this is the last thing Jesus says, and I leave you with this. And here's the most encouraging thing of all that he said to the disciples, and he says to you and me, Lo, I am with you always. How? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. His presence means protection. We're never out of his sight. His presence means power. He has all power and all authority and wants to demonstrate that power and authority in you and through you to the saving of your household and all those you love and care for. And finally, his presence means peace. The shalom of God that is with us and the shalom of God that is upon us. And I'm telling you, as the world, they're, they're going to the brink of cracking up and breaking apart. We now will stand out in contrast, those who have peace those who have the spirit, those who have a source of strength, 
They that wait upon the Lord, they shall mount up as with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And soon and very soon, we're going to hear. The greatest revival of human history, by the way, happens at the end. You remember Jesus' first miracle? What was his first miracle? Turning water into wine. What was so unique about that wedding is that they had run out of wine. And so then Jesus said, fill up six water pots, fill them with water. And they obeyed him because his mom said, do whatever he tells you. So they did. They obeyed. (laughs) Jesus said, now draw. And they drew and they said, oh my, this is the best. And when the people tasted it, they said, you, and, and what an honor it was for this family. Because they said most people, in other words, most weddings, which is the most social, wonderful thing you can do in that ancient Israeli, Israeli community, most people give the good wine at the beginning, and then when people have drunk some, then they give them the cheap stuff at the end. But you have distinguished yourselves. This wedding will forever be remembered Your family is being honored and lifted above all others because you did something no one has done. You saved the best for last. That was Jesus' first miracle. That was a prototype. And guess what? He saved the best for last. We are living in the last days. Soon and very soon, we're gonna hear the trumpet call and we're gonna be with the Lord. In the meantime, we get to participate in the greatest harvest of human history. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What does the end of the age mean? It means that our Lord has a plan, that he is the Lord of history, and everything that is happening and every daily event that is unfolding is literally according to the purpose and plan of God. And I'm telling you, the kingdom is already on its way. And God from heaven is telling the devil and put him on notice, I am coming. My kingdom is coming. My glory is coming. My power is coming. Jesus is coming. Everything he bought and paid for, he's getting ready now to inherit and to establish his kingdom on earth. And there's not a thing that devil can do about it. That's why he's freaking out and his heads are spinning because God's put him on notice. He knows that he has but a short time. Amen? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.